Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. going? Are you having fun? Okay. I had fun yesterday. Today I'm a little bit like, oh my god. Good. I was so cold last night that I had like, Rose came and brought a, a, a hot pad, you know? I had like a hot pad with two duvets on top of me and all of my clothes on. Except these ones. It's ridiculous. So yeah, you're going to feel great in two days. <laughs> the best Halloween costume that I ever saw was I went to a party and someone dressed up. They were wearing like a lot of layers of pink. And then as the costume, as the night went on, they would give like an article of clothing to someone, and they were a rash. <laughs> and at the end of the party, everyone had a little pink. <laughs> Isn't that so good? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, okay, well, As you can tell, I'm trying to do a few things at once over these three days. I want you to feel um, some of the teachings from the Diamond Sutra from the perspective of practice. Um, I want to clarify what I mean when I say practice. Um, in the mornings, I want us to be embodying this. And um, I also uh, hope that we can get a feeling, even in three days, that we're all doing this together. And I'm going to feel great tomorrow. So, uh, when you sit, it's really, really important that you're not wasting time. And so, what I'm suggesting and what Rose is suggesting, I hope, is that you're feeling your breathing. And uh, as you start to feel your breath, that process, if you keep it as a physical practice, um, is a process of self-soothing. It's a process of self-soothing. It's like, oh, difficulty is emerging? Okay, staying with the breath. And so we're kind of honoring when something hard is showing up, or even when something really peaceful is showing up, but we're not getting too involved in it. Okay? So that's why it's really important to understand that when you're doing the meditation practice, your focus is just on the soil and on keeping the conditions right. Setting up the conditions 
for peace to emerge, for stability to emerge, for spaciousness to emerge. So don't get on top of the content that shows up and get into the content that shows up. Just keep working the physical practice of the sitting. And that's a really good way to start. If you ever find that you have a lot of ruminating, which happens a lot with people who have anxiety and also people who are um, depressed, um, one of the characteristics in both those camps is ruminating. If you ever listen to someone who's depressed speaking, you can hear a lot of ruminating. Ruminating? The Buddha calls it vikalpa. <laughs> yeah, like the way I think about it is this. So you have an attention span, right? It's called chitta, is your attention span. And your attention span is like so interested in everything. Okay, and it just wants to go out everywhere and stick to things. Okay? And so, um, when your attention drifts, it time travels. It goes into the future or it goes into the past. And when your attention starts time traveling, it starts to turn, which is called a vritti. It starts to turn, which means revolution. It turns on itself. And when it starts turning on itself, that's called rumination. So it turns on itself, and you start getting stories. And when you keep, and oh, and here's something else interesting. The more it turns on itself, the more unconscious that gets. So once you get a story, eventually that starts becoming a story of self. Then it starts becoming a belief system, eventually. These vrittis that happen through time traveling. But we have this really interesting network in our brain called the salient network. And the salience network is a new area of the brain that American researchers who have fMRI machines in their universities to study meditators, is a very wealthy <laughs> salient or salience network. And what they can see is there's a network that lights up in the brain in the moment that you recognize when you're not present. Yeah. So it's not so much a thing, but it's a network. And then that's the flag that goes up that reminds you to come back again to the present moment. Now, I think a lot of us know that sometimes we can go off for like years <laughs> before we ever come back again with certain kinds of narrative. So what our practice is doing is it's training us to come back to the present again and again and again and again and again, which if you read like mindfulness-based stress reduction literature, they're saying that when you keep coming back to the present moment again, the best thing about that is that it, it, it reduces your stress. Because to time travel and just think about yourself all the time is so stressful. But one of the things we know as practitioners, especially those of you who go on retreat, is there's a whole other level to it, which is that when you time travel and start reinforcing 
these old ways of thinking, you're reinforcing your sense of me. And that's the existential or spiritual dimension of meditative practice, is you're training yourself not to fall for yourself. Even though you love yourself so much, not to fall for yourself. So you get a bit of distance from all these thoughts that are here all the time. Do you know this experience? <laughs> like, oh, me, me, so. And like you keep coming back to your breath, and then what starts to happen is like, oh, the thoughts are over here. They're over here. They're not here. <laughs> and a really good practice that you can use to do that. Um, I, I think is an amazing practice for ruminating, is a labeling practice. And this is a really great thing you, you, you can try, is that when you notice that your attention's just gone, you catch it and you say to yourself, future, future. And then you come back to your breathing. Or you say, past, past. Because it's really important to label things because language really acknowledges what's present. Just like I was just at a wedding in uh, New York, and when the wedding happens, it's so powerful when the people say, I do. <laughs> yeah, I commit to this. I do. You know what we did at this wedding? I officiated a wedding for Nathan and Caitlin, some of you might know, who practice with us. And um, uh, so we, they, they, they got married. And, and one of the things we did in the ceremony was um, they made vows to each other. And then at the end of the vows, I said to them, are you sure you can maintain these vows? Because in the Buddhist tradition, you're supposed to ask them three times. So then I asked again, are you sure that you can maintain the vows? And they said, yes. And then a third time, oh, for sure. Can you do this? And they said, yes, you know, all crying and everything. <laughs> So then I said uh, to the, there was 150 people there, and I said to everybody, I'm like, can you guys make vows to support Nathan and Caitlin? Because it's impossible to be a couple, isn't it? You tried this? It's impossible. A nuclear couple is a disaster. It's impossible. So I said to the community, can you support? And everyone said really loud, we will. And then I said, are you sure? Are you very sure? And then they said, and then this is how it went three times. So um, it's also like when someone says they're sorry, you might think that they might be sorry, but when they actually say it, something shifts. So labeling practice can be really good in meditation. And the way it works is you're feeling your breath. And every once in a while, if a thought starts getting strong, just go over to it and just label it. Present, present, or sorry, past, past, or future, future. And say it twice to really get it. And that's a good way of starting to train yourself to come back. Because all we care about in meditation for the first five years is whether you can come back or not. Can you come back or not? That's the most important thing. Can you come back? Can you be here or not? So past, past, future, future. What do you think? Could you try that? 
you know, pass, pass. And you can do this walking. When you're walking sometimes, you can do this. Past, past, future, future. Sometimes I run once in a while. I've been, I've been doing this for, since I moved to BC. I have a lot of trails around my house, so I run a little bit. And it's the only time where I don't do any kind of meditation. When I run, I just let my mind go. I try to read. I read a book about running and meditating. It seems silly. When I run, I just I can let my thoughts just do whatever they want to do. But walking, because it's a little bit slower and not as um, painful, um, walking is really good. You just go past, past, future, future. So that's a really good practice. Any questions about that? Yeah. Uh, any advice if you have a career or a life that requires a lot of planning? Yeah. Uh, so if you're spending eight hours or nine hours a day planning, and then you try and meditate, it's like you've programmed yourself to plan. Yeah, you've got to be able to, to shut that off. And so you need to practice to shut that off. In the same way that it, you know, if you've been trained in the legal system, there's like a very specific way you end up thinking. And you have to find other ways to use your, your mind. Any other questions? Do you think we can do one more section? And then a little exercise, and then we'll call it a day? Okay. Um, we're going to do this one kind of quickly. Section four. Moreover, Subhuti, when bodhisattvas give a gift, they should not be attached to a thing. Very reminiscent of the Bhagavad Gita. When they give a gift, they should not be attached to anything at all. So the word here that, that's used is um, dana, dana paramita, giving. Giving like a paramita is a really interesting word. It means... It, 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 you know, it's in, in, in uh, the old text, it was always translated as the other shore, which meant to, 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 to um, like you've heard the term prajna paramita. But what it means is you're giving, it means to go beyond and then to go beyond that and then to go beyond that. <laughs> so it's not like giving, but it's going beyond giving. And you know what that is, right? Like giving beyond giving. And then giving beyond that. And then giving beyond that. In other words, like it's pushing it until you don't really know anymore. Remember I was saying that that's the language of the Diamond Sutra? It's like, okay, I kind of had you there. Now I have no idea what you're talking about. Until giving just becomes a reflex of living. You're giving because you're living in every moment <coughs> without knowing what you're giving even. So, they should not be attached to a sight when they give a gift, nor should they be attached to a sound, a smell, a taste, a touch, or a dharma. Hopefully some of you hear the Heart Sutra in here. When they give a gift. Thus, Sabuti. Don't you love how fearless and bodhisattvas keep coming together? Mm -hmm. I love that so much. How, how many of you have a little kid? 
Anybody have little kids? What, what, how old's your kid? How, what's the kid's name? Oscar. Oscar. Like, what if Oscar was fearless Oscar? Yeah. What if we all did this with our kids? Or like, who else has a kid? What, 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 what are their names again? Sebastian and Raphael. Fearless Sebastian, fearless Raphael. We should all give Dharma names to him. Yeah. You know, in the Buddhist tradition, you give a name to someone at certain stages of practice. And um, so I've been having this idea that I was going to rename people their Instagram names. <laughs> like I have a student whose name is I Teach and Farm. So I was going to say Bodhisattva, I Teach and Farm. Fearless Bodhisattva, I Teach and Farm. <laughs> Anyways, so we'll, we'll call our kids Fearless Bodhisattva. Fearless Oscar Bodhisattva. Mom, <laughs> give a gift without being attached to the perception of an object. That's the most important sentence right there. Give a gift without being attached to the perception of an object. And why, Sabuti? The body of merit of those bodhisattvas who give a gift without being attached is not easy to measure. What do you think, Sabuti? Is the space to the east easy to measure? No. Is the space to the south, to the west, to the north, in between, above, below, in any ten directions easy to measure? No. So it is, Sabuti. The body of merit. So, so this is um, a, a, a punya, is the word that's used, which is um, a merit, um, which Thich Nhat Hanh transla translates as happiness. So Thich Nhat Hanh, whenever you read him talking about happiness in the commentary, it, he's translating the word punya as happy. That, that when you give something, you get happy. Um, the body of merit of those bodhisattvas who give a gift without being attached is not easy to measure. Thus, Sabuti, those who set forth on the bodhisattva path should give a gift without being attached to the perception of an object. What does that mean? Perception of an object. Yeah. The price of things? Uh huh. If, if I'm a subject, if I'm a self, a subject, what does there have to be for me to feel like a subject? An object, right? We know this about infants, right? An infant isn't a subject until they know that the breast does not belong to them, which seems to not be happening in my family. <laughs> and once they know that the breast is not theirs, they know that they exist because they're not omnipotent. So likewise, for all of us, when there's an object, there's a subject. So how would it be possible to give without be thinking of an object? What's that? You have to let go of the subject. You have to also let go of the subject. How do you let go of the subject? Just identify with yourself. Not identifying with yourself. How do you give and not identify with yourself or with an object? What does that mean? What on earth does this mean? Yes, Doug. You don't see it as a gift. 
You don't see it as a gift. There's no gift. Right? There's no giver. There's no giver. There's no gift. There's no giver. There's no object. There's no subject. It's not yours. It's also not not yours. There's no narrative. Yeah, because to have a narrative, you have to have a me that's, I'm giving this amazing gift. I hope they really like this TV that I'm giving them again. What's that? <laughs> so then what are you giving? Yeah. So let's go back to, do you remember just before this, the last commentary that I read on the previous chapter, there was a line in it that said, you only need to know yourself right now. Which is a way of saying, what's happening right now? How you respond right now, that's Donna. That's Donna. How you respond right now is how you give right now. Some of you might know, but one of the definitions I like to use for giving is attention. Because I, I feel that that is the most profound gift you can give people is attention. How long does it take to give somebody your attention? How long? Second. Immediately. Immediately. And when you give someone attention, your attention, are you thinking to yourself, I'm giving them my attention? <laughs> Sometimes. Sometimes, yeah. But isn't it true that when we practice over time, we start to see more clearly some of our motivations for doing things. Yeah. Like we start to see where some of our motivations are pretty slippery. No. So it seems to me that one of the things this chapter is saying is that as our minds and hearts become less agitated, our motivations for doing things become clearer. We may sometimes have mixed motivations, but we can feel it. We can tell. You know what it, do you know what it's like when someone gives you a gift? And like the motivation's not so clean. Parents, it's like this with parents a lot, right? A parent gives you a gift and you can feel like there's so many things wrapped up in it, you know, like, yeah. Like imagine you have like Italian parents with a big yard and you live in an apartment with no yard and they give you soil and tomatoes. And you know, is that a good example? You, and you know the gift is because they want you to come over and plant with them and make tomato sauce. But how do you receive a gift? I mean, if, if someone, uh, if you're a recipient of a gift, then I'm not in a position to judge why that gift is coming. Uh-huh, yeah. And it reminds me of uh, the movie City of Joy where he... He says to his daughter that you were a gift to me and a gift cannot be kept, so it has to be given away. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, so that's interesting. So, so how do you receive a gift when the motivation's impure? What do you do with that? Yeah. Uh-huh. And if you start working on it, if you're 
so right. So then you can have a lot of compassion. So, so yeah. It's your interpretation of motivation. So a gift is a gift. Someone mm-hmm. gives you something, and it's not a thing. It's just giving, right? Yeah. Because so yeah. you could have a lot of compassion because you could also then say, it's so hard for them to give. Mm-hmm. And then your heart can really open to that. They want me home. They miss me. They want me married. They want me married. (laughs) So, um, let's just pause here. So, let's, let's imagine that you can give your attention freely without it coming from a self. Let's imagine this is possible. Of course it's impossible. It's impossible because all the time we walk down the street and we give our attention to the people we want to give our attention to. And then there's people we don't want to look at. But if we're doing that, then we're building that structure up in us, not just out there. So then we have to remember what the Diamond Sutra is saying. We have to cut through that illusion. We have to cut through that illusion. And we have to start treating people more equally because then it heals fragmentations in us. And then it's a practice of dana paramita. We're giving, we're not attached to how we're giving, but we're doing the best we can in that moment. And if it's not the right thing in that moment, in the next moment we try something else. We're not attached to the fruit, which means we're only there giving in that moment, attentive to that moment, without an attachment to what the next moment will be. This might change the way we buy presents for our friends. After, after the birth of my son, uh, my last son, I have so many I can't even keep track of them anymore. Um, my partner's tailbone, her coccyx, really liked, wasn't happy. And so it made a lot of, uh, it gave her a lot of pain in her feet. So then I kept saying to her, I'm like, you've, you've just got to roll your feet on balls, you know, like every day, just five minutes, you know, but all the balls are missing in our house because I have all these kids and there's balls. And then right when I said this, she went out to the store, she came back from the post office and there was a package of two massage balls from Rose. <laughs> This is an amazing thing. How could Rose have known? It was so amazing. Can I tell you one more story? But I won't tell you any more stories about Rose because it's so embarrassing. <laughs> Bodhisattva Rose. Doug and, I, Doug and I were in the park. Doug and I were in the park the other day. And this kid came up to us. You know how boys do sometimes? Hi. And Doug and I are like, hi. And... He said, could you help me build a crossbow? <laughs> Very specific. Yeah. So uh, Doug did his usual, like, you know, kind of face. And, and he said, yeah, I don't know, maybe, sure. What have you got? And he had, like, one really good arrow with, like, a good... But then the piece that would be the bow was not very good. So I said, go get a longer piece. You know, how long? Like this long, this long. So he went and got like a 
terrible piece. So I sent him back again to keep getting it. He couldn't find the right size branch. And then I said, we're going to need some elastic bands. So he went and found one elastic band. But we needed a few elastic bands to get it tight enough. So then Doug opens up his bag. And wouldn't you know, Doug had a whole collection of elastic bags. <laughs> and then starts pulling out tools. Doug, in his little bag in the park, he had all kinds of tools for building a crossbow. You should have seen this kid. So Jill and Julie came to the park, and then I went and sat sitting with Jill and Julie, and we must have been sitting for an hour, and I looked back, and Doug is still sitting on the bench with this kid, building a very fine crossbow <laughs> with like many elastic bands. The whole thing was amazing. That's Donna. That's Donna. You don't even think about it. <laughs>